Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Gene and Mariah. Praise God. Praise God. Let's see. Could I have Matt, Pastor Matt, would you mind turning some lights on? Hallelujah. It's good to be in the house of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. I trust that your thanksgiving was just an extension of your thanks living. Uh, it is interesting that we have one day a year where we have set aside to give thanks. I think it would be great if we set 364 days a year to give thanks and maybe have one day of just outright complaining. <laughs> I just wonder what the food would be on that day, right? Maybe leftovers or something from a few days earlier. I don't know. Uh, we really ought to be, as children of God, those who are filled with hearts of thanksgiving. Amen? Amen. Pastor Dennis, uh, thank you for sharing your ice story. That was great. And I appreciate that when things don't go the way we intend, and then we give it a little bit more oomph, then it really doesn't go the way we intend. Things get all over us. But I think the key word was breakthrough, and I, I know that many of you who are sitting here today are going through some hard stuff. Some of you are going through some difficult circumstances. You're believing God for some miracles. You're believing God for some um, things that might even seem off the scale in terms of possibility into the realm of impossibility. By way of reminder, we serve a God who is the God of the impossible, He said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Will you say that with me again? With God, all things are possible. How many things are possible? All things. All things. I think sometimes we get in our mind and we begin to believe the lie of the enemy. And the lie of the enemy is, can't happen. The lie of the enemy is, won't happen. The lie of the enemy is, impossible. It's impossible. But the truth of the Word of God says and states and declares emphatically that all things are possible. All things are possible. And as Dennis, you were just telling the story about the hammer and the ice, I was reminded immediately of a story in the Old Testament And this is not where I had intended to go this morning, but I just feel like this may in fact be, and we're going to have a time of prayer in just a moment, for many in the room. The prophets, in the school of the prophets during the days of Elijah, they had decided that it was proper that the house of God be built and bigger and they needed more space. And so they made the suggestion to the prophet and said, hey, we're going to go and we're going to cut some wood down and we're going to build a bigger place for us. And Elisha said, okay, hey, that's good. And they said, well, why don't you come with us? And he said, okay, I'll go with you. And so they go, and while one of these sons of the school of prophets was working on a tree with his axe, he took a swing back, if you will, and the axe head dislodged itself from the staff of the axe or the wood handle of the axe and launched out into the water and sank to the bottom. Now, I don't know about you, we know from the story that he went to the prophet and said, hey, alas, we can't cut trees down without the axe. It's interesting to note that throughout scripture, in terms of typology, wood is a picture of the flesh and things we do in the arm of the flesh. How interesting that he was cutting down a tree. I think that really is a picture of cutting down the entire person of the flesh, if you will. The prophet, this young guy, could have just taken the axe handle and kept beating on the tree, right? He could just beat and beat and beat. It'd be like the ice not breaking. The tree was not going to come down without the cutting edge. And I believe that... The cutting edge, or that head of the axe, 
is the power of the Spirit of God in our lives. In this particular story, the prophet prayed and the axe head came to the surface and floated. And he was instructed to go get the head and reassemble. And here's the point that I believe that maybe the Lord would be saying to us this morning. Some of us have been beating the tree in the arm of the flesh. We didn't realize that we were doing it in our own strength. We've been seeking the Lord about some things, and we've been trying to help the Lord along with those things, and we've been using the arm of the flesh. It's like beating the tree with a wooden stick. The tree's not coming down. We need the power of the Spirit of God working with us. Note that he still had to swing the axe. Note that he had to step out into the water and get the axe head and put it back together in order to accomplish what God had intended for them to do. I think the same thing goes for you and I. We can't sit back idly and expect God to do something. I think we have to be engaged and cooperate with the Spirit of God. But we cannot do it in our own strength only. We need the power of God working in our lives. And so maybe you're here today and you've been going through some difficult times. Maybe you're here. And here's the thing. Can I just say we're in company with one another. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And when it comes to our spiritual endeavors, there's not a one of us who has it going on, so to speak. Do you all recognize that? We're Not one of us is like, you know, hey, super Christian, here I am. Uh, you may be walking in victory and all those things, and that's marvelous. But I just remember that we're all... We're all susceptible to doing things in the arm of the flesh. And I would say predominantly that's what we do in many cases. Everybody get that? Look at your neighbor and say, hey, I get it that you work in the flesh too. (laughs) Yeah, because I think we need to land the plane sometimes. Right? I mean, as followers of Christ, we have to stop pretending in this setting Right? We put on our Sunday spiritual best. <laughs> and we do! And then others around us think, well, man, I could never live like them. They just, they're super Christians, and I'm not. And sometimes we walk away discouraged. So everybody recognize no pretense in our living, right? There's no, like, I'm you know, got it going on, so to speak. Can we, I, I believe the hillside's kind of that way anyway, but just by way of a reminder, can just look at your neighbor and say, you really don't have it going on. <laughs> Such encouraging words. <laughs> I came to church this morning to be built up and wow, I just got stones thrown at me. I think it's important and here's why, guys, because if we try and build the house in our own strength, The builders build in what? Vain. We need the Spirit of God. We need the power of God. We need the cutting edge. We need the head of the hammer. Dennis could have gone out there this morning and started tapping on that ice like with a drumstick. It's not going to do anything. But boy, you get that steel at the end of the hammer that has 24 ounces of power and a little bit of elbow grease, and he got baptized. <laughs> and we, we, do, we need to see breakthrough. So here's what I'm going to do. We're going to pray. And uh, amen. <laughs> we're going to pray, and we're going to believe. Like babes, we're going to believe. And we're going to ask God that every one of us, no matter what your situation is, that you would see a breakthrough and that we would lean not on our own understanding but let the power of God be made manifest in our lives. With that being said, if you're here today and you're believing for God, whether possible or impossible, whether small or great, but you need or desire to see a breakthrough, Will you let the rest of us know by simply indicating with a raised hand, that's me. I'm, remember, I'm asking, I'm asking. Now hold it up high, real quick. Just hold it up high. Folks, look around. There are a lot of hands up. And it's the reality. You can put it down there. That's the reality. 
So we're going to have a little bit of uh, Bible gymnastics this morning. Let's stand back up. Can we stand up? If you're able to stand, please stand. And I'm going to ask you, if you raised your hand a moment ago, will you raise it again? Get your hand up like this, just boom, boom, because we want some folks to lay hands on you. And if you're if you're standing near someone, maybe you have your hand up, but you're near someone who has one, just rest your other hand on their shoulder, and let's just make connection right now. We're laying hands on one another, and we're going to believe by faith together. Father, we come right now in the mighty name of Jesus as a family, the family of God that meets together at Hillside Christian Fellowship. Lord, we come before Your throne today and we acknowledge that You are the one who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or imagine. Nothing is impossible with You. Father, we come with hearts of faith today. Lord, we recognize without faith it is impossible to please You. And so, Lord, we are coming to You and we believe that You are able and that You are willing. And so, Lord, we bring our requests before the throne. And whatever your need may be, you're standing here, just be speaking that just quietly where you are. Lord, this is what I'm believing for. God, this is what I need. Lord, I need you. I think about the psalmist who said in Psalm 119, it's time for you to act, O God. It's time for you to act, O God. And Lord, we ask, it's time. It is time. Oh, Lord, may you summon your power as you have done before. Lord, like the children of Israel who declared the testimonies of God, and they saw the the, the Red Sea parted before them, they saw the ten plagues, they saw the river Jordan stopped up as the priests put their foot in the water. They saw the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. Oh, God. May we see your miracle-working power. We believe, God, we believe. And Lord, where there's disbelief, where there is doubt in our hearts, God, help us with our doubts. Help us with our doubt. Father, will you move? And for every person, Lord, with some of the requests, God, we recognize that we ask amiss. We're sometimes asking for things that are not your good, perfect, and pleasing will. Lord, will you grant grace? Help us to receive the answer, no. And help us, Lord, to redirect our hearts and our minds. And Lord, that we would, even in our prayer life, seek to align with your good, your perfect, and your pleasing will. So Lord, we're asking for grace. Grace, God. We commit these things to you and we thank you, Father, that you hear our prayers. We ask all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus. And we give you praise with thanksgiving. We present these requests before your throne. Thank you, Father. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said a strong amen. 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 Hug somebody next to you and say, God's moving. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You can be seated. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He's alive. He's alive. Praise God. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. As we've navigated through the first couple of chapters in the book of Revelation, it has been the goal to do a single chapter per week on Sunday morning, then Sunday evening to go verse by verse through that chapter. However, when we get to chapters 2 and 3, those seven letters to the seven churches, we took one week per letter, if you will. Now we're sort of picking up the pace. So I want to encourage you to be reading along with us as students of the Word of God. We want to be those who read it. We want to be those who study it. We want to be those who meditate on it, those who memorize it, and certainly those who obey it. So as you read along, we find ourselves in chapter 5. I won't do recaps as I had done in the previous chapters, 
but to remind you that Revelation is the only book of 66 that encourages all to read. In that, there is a blessing to those who read it, to those who hear it, and to those who keep the words contained in it. And it is the only book of 66 books contained in the canon of Scripture that comes with the own, its own divine outline, literally given by Jesus Christ himself. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19. He inspired John on the island of Patmos to write the things which he has seen, the things which are, and the things that will take place after this or after these things. We're in section 3. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1 was the transitional verse that moved us into that third section of the book of Revelation. Chapters 4 and 5, we see the church literally in heaven. Revelation chapter 6 through 19, God's focus and attention will be back on the earth. So today we're in chapter 5, oh incidentally, chapters 20, 21 and 22, we see the ultimate demise of Satan, we see that the church and the rest of the patriarchs will live happily ever after in heaven. That's the good part. We've seen the end. We win. Hallelujah. Uh, But today we find ourselves in that second chapter, if you will, that chapter 5, where the church is now in heaven. And I want to read in a few moments uh, verses 1 through 7. But before we get there, I want to remind us what Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, In fact, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives seven parables about the kingdom of God. In verse 44, he says this, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Interesting that he tells us that the field is the world. And here's the thing. Jesus is purchasing the world because there's a treasure in the world. He gave everything he had to purchase the field because of the treasure that was hidden in it. Guess what the treasure is? It's you and me. It's the church. It's his bride. His bride. He sold everything. He, he did everything so that he could purchase the world or the field. So that he could have the treasure contained in it. And that's the church, the body of Christ. That's you and me. How cool is that? That God gave everything because he loves you and he loves me. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God loves you. God loves me. And that is so very encouraging. You may be here today and you think, man, does God still love me? Maybe you did something this week. Maybe you made a decision that was contrary to even what God's spirit on your inside was saying. And you violated that That encouragement on the inside. You said, you know what? I don't want to listen to the voice on the inside. I don't want to hear what the Word of God has to say. I just want to do my own thing. And you went and you did something. Maybe it was small. Maybe it was big. Be reminded today, God loves you. God loves you. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Are you ready for this? Nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That is so encouraging. We, we sing hymns, back in the day we used to sing hymns, the vilest offender who truly believes, right? The blood of Christ can cover his propitiation, his atoning work can cover the vilest offender's offenses. You might think, well, that's me. Well, the good news is Jesus covers all. Praise be to God. So he purchased you and I he, when he purchased the world. Now, Why did he have to purchase the world? Doesn't the scripture tell us in Psalm 24 that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein? The earth is the Lord's. If it's the Lord's, then why does he have to purchase it? We are a purchased possession. Well, some things transpired in the annals of history. And uh, albeit that God still, he owns the earth, he does not currently have possession of the earth. His adversary does. 
We know God gave over dominion to man when he created man in the days of creation. He made man in his own image and he says, have dominion. He gave dominion to man. So man had basically title deed to the earth. And all that was in the earth, you know the story. We have the record in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. Adam, in full knowledge, disobeyed the commandment. He disobeyed the law. And there was only one commandment at that point. Not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But... In the midst of Eve being deceived by the serpent, Adam, who was with her in full knowledge, took the fruit and ate it. Eve was deceived. Adam was not. Adam, in absolute rebellion to the law that God had given or the commandment that God gave, he ate of the fruit. And as a result, Paul tells us later in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 6, that the one whom you submit to is the one in whom you will become slave to. He became subservient and forfeited the title deed to the earth. And he himself became a slave. And therefore, all men who are of the seed of Adam are slaves to Sin slaves to death. Hallelujah, that we can be born again. Amen? That's good news. We're no longer slaves to sin, the the law of sin and death, but the law of the spirit of life, or life in the spirit. But there was a forfeiture in those days of creation. And we don't have the exact timelines when that happened. How long did it take Adam to name all of the animals that were on the earth and so forth and so on? How long was it before that God said it is not good that man should be alone and he caused man to be in a deep sleep and pulled from the side and made a bride for Adam and brought Eve to him and he said, you are bone of my flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. You will be called woman. And the two became one flesh. How long that took, we don't have the record. We simply know that in the process of time, they disobeyed. One being deceived, one in full knowledge. And as a result, there was a forfeiture of the title deed. You say, well, why is that significant? Well, I believe the summation of what has transpired in humanity comes to play in chapter 5 of Revelation. It all gets laid out for us. And we're going to look very, unfortunately, very quickly this morning we'll look at, and if you want to see more or hear more about these things that have transpired and the types and the patterns of our God, I want to encourage you to come back tonight at 6 o'clock. We'll be going through verse by verse in this particular chapter. And by way of reminder, I do want to remind you that the Western mind or the Greek mindset, which the majority, if not all of us, have been influenced by that Greek mindset. So just hold your hands like this in your head and say, Greek mindset. That's me, Greek. Uh, we have, and honestly, the majority of the world has been influenced by the Greek mindset. And the Greek mindset, when in relationship to prophecy, the Greek mindset or the Greek frame of mind is... Prophecy equals prediction and fulfillment. Prediction and fulfillment. Whereas the Jewish mindset, I'll call it the Midrash mind, the Midrash mind looks at prophecy very different. Their view of prophecy simply as prophecy equals pattern. Pattern. God is revealing his character. He's a God of order and there's pattern. And so we're going to see some of those patterns played out in this portion of scripture. And remember that of the 404 verses contained in the prophecy, as we know it, the book of Revelation, there are over 800 allusions to Old Testament typology. The scroll that we're going to see in the hand of the one who sits on the throne is a picture that we can have unfolded for us when we look into the Old Testament stories. 
Remember one of the first rules of interpreting the Word of God in simple Bible hermeneutics is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so when we see a picture and we go, that doesn't register with my Greek mind, we go back to the Old Testament for the understanding of what's happening. Does that make sense? Nod your head if that makes sense. And if you see someone not nodding their head next to you, will you wake them up? No, I'm teasing. Okay, here we go. So let's read, if you will, Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, and we'll, we'll navigate through, and uh, we'll, we'll make some application as we go, and then we'll have prayer, we'll sing another song, and then we'll be going to eat some pizza. So hopefully you'll come and join us. All right, here we go. It says this, chapter 5, verse 1, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now let me stop here. Put your finger right there. Some of your translations say a book. I just want you to know books as we understand a book with a binding and a cover and a back, these didn't come into existence until the second century. So when it's referencing a book, what it is really saying is a scroll. Back in the day, they would take papyrus reeds that could be 10 feet, 11 feet in height, and they would mash them down, soak them in some fluids, and they would glue them together, and they would glue the grain this direction on the one side and then this direction on the back side. And so they always would write on the front side because that's the way the grain would go. And the scrolls would contain the entirety of the book. So for instance, in the manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, some of the manuscripts, like the manuscript of the Gospel of Mark, it's like 13 feet in length when the scroll is completely unrolled. It's about eight and a half by well, maybe 8 to 10 inches this way, and then it rolls out to 13 feet. If you get to the book of Luke or the gospel of Luke, it's 24 feet in length. The book of Acts or the letter, uh, the, 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 the Acts of the Holy Spirit, if you will, it's another 24-foot scroll, so they just roll them up. Interestingly to note also that when it comes to an understanding of a scroll that has to do with a legal manner, there will always be an insignia seal. And if it has to do with a will or testament, it will have seven seals. And when it has to do with a title deed, it will have information written on the inside. And as it is rolled up and sealed with a seal, There will be information written on the outside against the grain, so to speak. And what is written on the outside of the scroll are the terms for redemption. To redeem those things that have been sold, if you will. Now, we'll talk a little bit in a moment about what that looks like. But let's go back to uh, Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Now, verse 2, it says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice... Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? The New King James begins verse 3 and says, And no one, no one. I like the way the King James translated. I believe it's a more accurate translation in in, in the authorized version. It says, And no man was found. No man. No man in heaven or on the earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I, John, wept much. Let me stop here. You might underline the word wept there. There are two words for the word weep in the New Testament. One says, one describes the weeping as just kind of a quiet sob. Like, it's more internal. There's a grief. There's an expression that's visible but it's almost like a weeping inside. When Jesus stood at Lazarus' tomb and he wept, that weeping internally and that weeping where it's visible but it's not wailing, that's how Jesus wept there. But the other word that is translated for weep is wailing. Wailing convulsively, unable to get one's breath. Have you ever cried that way? Where, <gasps> where you, can, you can't even breathe. There's just such a violent in the diaphragm in your body that you can't even respond to get air. 
That's the kind of weeping that Jesus had when he entered into the city of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed for thee. And the Bible says that he wept. He was weeping because he had desired to draw them in, and they rejected him. Well, that's the kind of weeping that John's having right here. It's an uncontrollable weeping. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. It says, So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll, or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the hand of him who sat on the throne. Father, in these next few moments, as we look into the perfect law of liberty, the word of God, challenge our hearts, I pray, and Lord, open our understanding like those men who were on the road to Emmaus as they walked with the resurrected Christ. Later, as they sat at the meal, The bread was broken and thanks was given and their eyes were opened and they were able to understand. So, Lord, may we have understanding today in Jesus' name. And everyone said a strong amen. 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 So, a title for today's message, there is a redeemer. There is a redeemer. And I'm so very thankful for that. We're going to look at three epic revelations from today's text. The first is this curious scroll. And I would like you to note that there are three aspects associated with the scroll that are really identified in these seven verses, but you almost have to go to chapter 6 to get one of them in its totality. But the first thing to recognize is that this scroll has something to do with man. It has something to do with man. The very nature that there is a search amongst man, and no one is found, and then one is pointed out. It tells us that it's about man. This is about man. The second thing is that it has to do with the earth. Now, this is where you really have to go into chapter 6 and realize that as the seals are broken, every single seal that's broken has some consequence or some effect, if you will, on the earth. And so this scroll that is written within and without has to do with man and has to do with the earth. And then finally, it has to do with redemption. And we see that in a portion that we didn't read, but if you looked at verse 9 and 10, you would see that there is those that sing a song, and they're saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God. The third aspect is redemption. So it has to do with man, it has to do with the earth, and it has to do with redemption. Three things that very, very poignantly would point out that this scroll that is written within and without, one could probably, without any reservation or hesitation, identify that the scroll is, in fact, the title deed to the earth. It's the title deed to the land. And it has an obligation associated with it for mankind. Interesting to note. We'll look at that. So, where do we first see a scroll that has information written within and without? If we go to the Old Testament, we would go to Jeremiah... And Jeremiah the prophet, in Jeremiah chapter 32, the first, say, 14 verses, has an interesting story. Jeremiah himself is in prison, and he's got an uncle who had lost a piece of property. But before we get there, and before we talk about that, let me remind everyone who is here today that, again, our Greek mind and methodology is very different than Israel's method 
of doing things. For instance, in America, if you wanted to purchase a piece of property, we buy things what is known as fee simple. Fee simple is I pay a certain amount of money and I become owner of that which I purchase. I have ownership. That's not how it works with God. And that's not how it works with the nation Israel. With Israel, the land stayed with the family name and the family inheritance. If someone who had land ended up with a debt that they couldn't pay, they would sell their land, but not fee simple. It was actually a lease. That the one who was owed the debt could now utilize the land and its production capability to regain that which he had lost in this business transaction somewhere along the way or to regain his debt. Does that make sense? And if even the land's production couldn't repay, even the individual himself would become what is known as a slave to the one who he owned the debt. So even his personal production would be to pay off the debt. You see a little picture here? You and I, we have a debt we cannot pay. And we strive to make it right. But we fall short time and time and time and time again. And God has made a provision known as redemption. Here's the beauty. The Redeemer, the information on the outside of the scroll, could be a near of kin. He's called the Goel in this Israeli system. The Goel could, if he had the means wherewith to do it, and he had a willingness to do it, and he was kin, he could, let's say, mom, you had this debt, and you had, your land was now being used by someone else, and you were now slave to someone, and if I was kin, and I was able, in other words, I had resources, funds, I could redeem your land and you by paying your debt for you and you would be liberated. You would be. (laughs) So in man's case, no one was found who was near of kin, able, and willing. And fourthly, even willing to have the obligations associated with some of those redemption things. So really four qualifications. Now, we know the rest of the story because we heard then the one elder said, hey, don't weep, John, because behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has prevailed. So initially, though, this redemption piece seemed like, oh, no. And so we have that laid out for us in Jeremiah chapter 32 and those handful of verses where Jeremiah is kin to an uncle and he's instructed to redeem a piece of property. And it is there that there is information about the scroll being written within and without. And so we see that that title deed to the property in Jeremiah chapter 32, we go back into Revelation and it helps us to understand when a scroll is written within and without that it has to do with a title deed. Does everyone see that? Okay, so title deed. We won't go to Jeremiah. I want to encourage you, Jeremiah chapter 32, verses uh, 1 through 14 for sure. Um, Okay, so we are witnessing in Revelation chapter 5 this heavenly version, if you will, of this process that God established on earth. So you see the pattern piece? Do you see that pattern piece associated with the prophecy? I hope you see that. Okay, so... Adam, or man, forfeited the title deed to the earth and became indebted, thus the slave, to the temporary least ownership to Satan, the one whom he subjected himself to. You see that? So all men are sinners. The wages of sin is death. So we are indebted to death, if you will, to our current landlord. But fortunately, Jesus paid a price... And so we can be redeemed. That's good news. Okay. 
Now, let me say this right now, too. If you're here today and your faith is not in Jesus Christ, you have not put your faith for your own transgressions and your inherited sin nature from Adam's seed, the Bible says you stand condemned in your sin. Stand condemned. The good news, the gospel, you don't have to stay there. Amen. But it does require a decision by you. A decision to receive what Jesus accomplished upon the cross. We'll come back to that in a few moments. So, God reveals this pattern, if you will, and I'll go into greater detail tonight. I mentioned to the group last Sunday night that if you had opportunity this week, you should read through the short book, the short Old Testament book, the book of Ruth. It's four chapters, and it is an amazing story. And the book of Ruth also plays out two very interesting laws that govern the nation of Israel that had to do with redemption. There was a drought in the land. I'll give you the synopsis. There was a drought in the land, and Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their sons went to another land. They went down to the land of the Moabites because of the drought. While there, the sons took a couple of daughters as wives, Moabite women, and in the process of time, Elimelech died. His property had been sold when they left. But remember, it's not fee simple. It was just simply leased. Apparently there was debt, and so that leasing was enabling someone else to gain the production from that land. Well, in the process of time, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. Then her two sons die, and she's got these two daughter-in-laws, and the drought news is ended, and so they're going to head back to Bethlehem. Naomi says to the girls, go find some husbands here amongst your people, the Moabites. But Ruth said, no, I'm going to go with you. And so Ruth travels with Naomi to come back. And because of their poor state, they no longer have the land, they're poor and destitute, Ruth operates as a gleaner. She goes onto some property, and they weren't allowed to do some certain harvesting of certain portions of their field. And so Ruth is there harvesting, and she happens to be harvesting on a fella who's a wealthy guy named Boaz. And Boaz happens to, just happens to be, a relative of Elimelech. A kin. And as a kin, he was wealthy or able to redeem Naomi's land. But... In his willingness, he also had to be willing to fulfill the obligation of carrying on Elimelech's name so that the inheritance could remain in the family name. So he had to operate under what is known as the Leverite marriage or the Leverite law of marriage. When a woman died and there was no one to carry the name there was no male seed to carry the name the near of kin would take that wife into his fold and sire if you will a male child to carry on the name of his brother we go like this that does not resonate with my greek mind but that was the operation that god had in that day And Boaz was willing, one, two, three, four, in all scenarios, he met the requirements of the Goel, or the kinsman redeemer. However, it became obvious that there was a nearer of kin. So he went to the nearer of kin, and he says, Naomi's land, Elimelech's land, is in need of redemption. You have first rights. And he says, well, I'd like to redeem the land. He says, okay, you're able, you're kin, you're able, and you're willing. He says, but by the way, you have to take on Ruth, the Moabite wife, and sire children. He goes, whoa, not doing that. I'm married already. Two wives. We don't fully know what his reasoning for not doing, but he says, I'm not willing. I'm not willing. And he says to Boaz, Boaz, you redeem the land. Here's the type. 
Naomi is a picture of the Jews and mankind. She lost her land and was in need of a redeemer because she could not redeem it herself. Boaz is a type, as the kinsman redeemer, is the type of Jesus Christ. Jesus, in his process of redeeming the field, he gained for himself a Gentile bride known as the church. And that is who Ruth is a picture of. And so we have this whole story of God's plan of redemption unfolded in four beautiful chapters in the book of Ruth. Here's the fascinating piece. Think about this for just one moment. Jesus, God, back before the creation, was in heaven. And he forfeited everything to become our kin. He took on flesh. I want that to sink in for a moment. The God of the universe. The God of the universe. All-powerful, all-knowing, transcends all things. He loves you and me so much, knowing the rules that He established. He said, I will become flesh and purchase them back. The miracle, the miracle of Christmas, which we celebrate at this time of year, was the virgin birth. Could not be the seed of Adam, which was tainted with sin. So God said, Behold, the virgin will be with child, and she will give birth to a son, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. God became flesh so that he could be the kinsman redeemer. As kin, he met the first requirement. Abel, he lived a sinless life. Remember the requirement, the soul that sins shall surely die, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. He lived a sinless life, and therefore his shed blood became a satisfying price that was established and paid. And he was able and very willing to take on you and me, a Gentile bride. Thanks be to God. And so we have this marvelous picture. And so I'm way ahead of myself in my notes. Guy, where are you? (laughs) We're still on point one. Well, point two, let me just say, we see in these few verses, verses two through four, that there was a comprehensive search. No man was found in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. No one comprehensive. And there are three thoughts associated with that. The requirements, this worthiness, kin, able to pay, and willing, and then the assumption of the obligations of the benefactor, that Leverite marriage. The reach, heaven, earth, and under the earth, and the result, and the initial result is no man was found. No man was found. The reason John wept bitterly is because John fully understood that the scroll was the title deed, and if no kin could redeem, everything was lost. No hope. And recognizing that there was no hope, John, who was a pastor of some seven churches minimally, heart-wrenched, wait, no redemption, broken. Imagine right now, your life with no hope. Paul said it this way, we would be the most miserable of all creation if Christ has not risen from the dead. Without hope, 
But the elder said, Behold, behold. Look at these words. Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed. If ever there was a scripture that is worthy of underline, that is worthy of remembrance, that is worthy of memorization, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Judah. The lion, the root of David, prevailed. Which leads us into the third epic revelation, which is the conquering Savior. The conquering Savior. The three aspects. He's the lion. He's the lamb. He's the Lord. Come on. As the lion, Genesis 49 reminds us that there would be one from the tribe of Judah who would rule. Who would rule. This is fulfilled in Jesus. As the lamb, we're reminded of the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12. A lamb without spot or blemish whose blood was to be poured out, if you will, and painted over the lentil of the houses. And the houses that had the blood of the unblemished lamb painted over their lentils and on the doorpost, the death angel would pass over. And so he is the lamb. He is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth. You see, God's plan way back here when man blew it, when Adam bombed in the garden. It was no surprise to God. God had prepared this in advance. He knew the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. He was without spot or wrinkle. He was sinless, and therefore his blood was able to make propitiation for our sin. His blood was able to purchase us back. When he said those words upon the cross to telestai, in the Greek, to telestai, it is finished. To telestai means literally paid in full. Paid in full. Yeah, the debt that I could not pay has been paid for me by a near of kin. God became flesh. Blows my mind. He is Lord. The world is His by right of creation. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. By right of creation, He made it. He spoke it into existence. He created it. There's a song in my favorite movie. I'll give a little revelation information about my favorite movie, The Sound of Music. I know it's not very manly. My boys, you ask them what their favorite movie is, you know, Gladiator, <laughs> Braveheart. I'm like, the hills are alive. <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> Gene's like, whoa. <laughs> Maria, Julie Andrews, sings in one of her songs, Nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. Except Genesis. God spoke it into existence. So by right of creation. Where's Kim? I got to sing the hills are alive kind of stuff. (laughs) In church, wow. Okay, anyway. (laughs) Scratch that from the tape. (laughs) By right of creation, he created it, spoke it into existence, and he formed everything in it. And Which just basically means he reared it from nothing. He, the world, is his by right of Calvary. He's redeemed it. He was able to pay the price. And he did. Kin, able, willing, and fulfilled all of the obligations associated with it. And the world is his by right of conquest. And here in chapter 5, we see him retake it. He's going to retake it. So, by way of conclusion, in Revelation chapter 5, we see this 
summation. It is interesting to note, and you might, re- you might remember from when you were in school, that while you're going through your textbook and you have all these questions, you're like, what in the world? I have no idea. What is, I don't even know. One day you had this information that the answers are in the back of the book. And so it is with the book of Revelation. What is this leave right marriage thing? What? That doesn't make sense. Oh. Okay. Hey, pretty cool stuff. I mean, come in the next few weeks and you'll hear some more like aha moments. <laughs> wow. Right? I mean, you hear, we'll probably hear about this guy named Zeholophad back in the Old Testament. I mean, he's just got like this little piece in there. But without that little piece, there's no redemption. There's no Savior. You go, who knew that guy was so important? And yet it is. And what happens as a result in his family, it really is the Christmas story. It's amazing. So, here we have in this text, and we conclude with that third point, the conquering Savior. He is Lord. Who is he to you? Who is he to you? Is he Lord? Here's the thing. As the lion of the tribe of Judah, he will rule and judge. And he will judge both believers and non-believers. In your life, will he be the lion of the tribe of Judah? Or will he be the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world? Is your faith today in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin? Outside of faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, remember you stand condemned. That puts you in the lion involvement. I want to encourage you, if you've not, to have Jesus become the Lamb of God in your life. Will you confess you're a sinner? Will you receive his redemptive work in your life? He shed his own blood. He became man. He shed his own blood. He lived a sinless life. He shed his own blood. He died a substitutionary death. And he rose again to affirm everything that he said. He is Lord. Will you receive what he has done for you? To be born again? To have your sin forgiven? To know that your name is written in his book in heaven? The Lamb's book of life? If you're here today and you've not put your faith in Christ, we would compel you to do so. We would invite you to do so. We would inspire and encourage you to do so. If you would like to know more about what it means to be born again, we would love, love, love to talk with you, to share God's grace, and to pray with you, and to make confession with you, and to see you water baptized, to make that public declaration that you're a follower of Christ. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back and I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning. Remembering those words that Jesus spoke in one of the seven parables that he spoke in Matthew chapter 13. Verse 44, again the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found. You're in the field right now. Are you... Well, you're in the field and you definitively are the treasure. Have you been found? Have you been found? How we get found is by receiving what Christ has done for us. When we're found, we see the totality of that being finished. He hides us and he goes and he makes purchase. That's what Christ did. In his foreknowledge, there are those of us who have been hidden in the Lord. We find our hiding in the shadow of his wings, if you will. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I'll come back to receive you unto myself. He's coming again soon. Will you be ready? I'm going to invite you with every eye closed. Will you just take a moment with me and every eye closed and every head bowed. If you're here this morning and you've not put your faith in Christ and you realize that you stand condemned in your sin and you would like for the very first time to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, 
would you indicate that you would like to be included in this prayer simply now by raising your hand and say, remember me when you pray this morning. Is there any here who'd say, yes, I want to receive Christ. You can indicate that by raising your hand where you are. I see that hand in the back. God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? You'd say yes to Jesus. Yes to Jesus. I'm just going to take a moment. You're here and you say, I want my sin forgiven. Just a moment. Maybe you're here this morning and you committed your life to Christ years ago. Sometime in the past, but you've not been living for the Lord. And this morning you're reminded of all that Christ has done for you. And you're reminded that He is coming soon. And you really would like to see your life amount and account for something for the Lord. Maybe it's that you've been operating in the arm of the flesh. You've been beating the tree with a a big old stick. And you really want to see the power of God made manifest in your life so you can walk in victory over sin. You can walk in victory and live your life for the Lord. If you say, I'd like to be included in this prayer, would you indicate that simply by raising your hand where you're at and say, that's me. Will you remember me this morning? I see lots of hands. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we are so thankful for God, your great plan of redemption. As Matt quoted earlier, Pastor Matt said, God, you demonstrated your love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God, you made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, we thank you for your great plan of salvation. For that one who raised their hand today today and said, yes, I want my sin forgiven. I want my name written in God's book. Just the extension of the hand was that expression of faith. Thank you, Father, that you see that in Jesus, you have become Savior. Your word says if we confess with our mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, and we believe in our hearts that God, you raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. Today, Father, we declare with this one, Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's say that together, everyone. Jesus Christ is Lord. And Lord, we believe that you raised Christ from the dead. He is a risen Savior. We have John's testimony and we know these things to be true. Risen. And so, Lord, we give you thanks for this dear sister in the Lord who is now born again. God be glorified. We praise you. Father, for every hand that went up and said... I've been doing a lot of things in my life or some things or a few things in my life with the arm of the flesh. And I really want to resign and really live my life under the power of your spirit. I want to rededicate my life to you, O God. We simply make this confession and prayer. Lord, we're sinners and we need your help. We want to prevail even as you prevailed. We want to be more than conquerors through Christ. We don't want to be stick beaters. We want to be axe handlers. And we want to be able to chop down the wood, the flesh in our life. We want to no longer be under the yoke of bondage and the law of sin and death, but really walk in life and newness in the spirit of life. And so, Lord, help us to renounce the world, renounce our flesh, and renounce the devil. To walk upright in godly lives in this present age. To say no to ungodliness and worldly passions while we wait for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you. Now, Father, may you bless and may we receive your benediction as we celebrate this day. As we go from here, we'll sing this last song with Pastor Dennis and we'll do some teardown kind of stuff and meet over at the pizza place in about 25 minutes and some will go early and be there now. Lord, will you, will you fellowship amongst us as we fellowship together? We give you praise and we give you thanks on this day. In Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said a strong amen. 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 Let's sing that worship song together, Pastor Dennis. Your love never fails and never gives up. It never runs out on me. Oh, your love never fails and never gives up. It never runs out on me. Your love never fails and never gives up.
Father, we do thank you for our Redeemer. The Redeemer, Jesus Christ, has come, the kinsman Redeemer. And as we go from here, we just pray that we would walk in faith and in victory and triumphantly as we put our hope and our trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Have a good afternoon and we'll see you at pizza.